Today's passage is taken from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. Here is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning suffer. This is the second death. This is the word of God. Thank you, Yang Kuang, very much indeed. Well, as um, previously said, this is the. Um, waiting for the camera. Yeah, yeah this is the last study in uh, our series in Revelation. Uh, next uh, Saturday morning, Christmas Day, we'll be uh, in the Gospel of Matthew for one talk. And I do want to encourage you to please invite friends and family to come along. It will be a Gospel talk for the outsider. And uh, as Christmas is one of the two festivals in the calendar, when outsiders will come to church, uh, let's take full advantage of that opportunity and uh, get them in here by whatever means. But uh, for now, let's have our Bibles open, please, um, at Revelation 21. We're going to be dipping into various chunks of Revelation 21 and 22 this morning, and it will be a help to me and a help to you if you have the passage open in front of you. But as we begin, let's, uh, let's ask for the Lord's help. Well, Lord, um, in the book of Revelation, we have been told that these tremendous upheavals of plague and disease and climate change and war are trumpet calls from heaven. And you have woken us up to these things. And so, Lord, we do pray that as we look at your word this morning, 
that you would clarify our thinking about our future and about our destiny as we consider this tremendous text under the title Christmas Completed and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Richard Baxter, uh, anybody heard of Richard Baxter? Yeah, he was um, a pastor in England in the 17th century, probably one of the most effective pastors in the history of the church. But uh, his entire adult life was spent battling one disease after another. He had a constant cough, uh, frequent nosebleeds, he had gallstones, he had kidney stones, he had digestive ailments, he had migraines, you name it, he had it. And uh, one of the effects of all of that suffering was to make him aware of the shortness of life and the inevitability of death. Uh, when he was just 35, he found himself bedridden and uh, he was convinced he was going to die. So he began to, to meditate on the future, uh, to think about heaven, and uh, he began to write down his thoughts. Well, to everyone's surprise, including his, he actually survived, and his thoughts became a book entitled The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And uh, from that time onwards, Richard Baxter took up the practice of meditating on heaven for half an hour every day because of the, the powerful effect that this had upon his life. And he commended all of his readers to do the same thing. This is what he said, it might appear on the screen behind me. He said, if you want spiritual light and heat in your life, why are you not more in the sunshine? Because you don't think about heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted, and your duty is a sacrifice without fire. Well, those are punchy words, aren't they? Well, as I say, our passage this morning is Revelation 21 and 22. It's the most uh, detailed picture of heaven in all of Scripture. And although it doesn't answer all of the questions we might have in our minds this morning, I think it gives us more than enough to stimulate a lifetime's reflection uh, and wonder. But having said that, I need to say that we need to approach these two chapters with Christian caution. Uh, like the rest of Revelation, uh, these chapters are full of dramatic images, most of them straight out of the Old Testament. Uh, so there are references to the New Jerusalem. Uh, there are references to the Lamb of God, the throne of God, the temple of God. And there are references to the water of life, river of life, the tree of life, and the book of life. So yes, these chapters are chock-a-block full of images straight out of the Old Testament, and we need to approach them carefully if we're to understand them faithfully and apply them accurately. Let me give you one example, just to show you the kind of challenge we're dealing with. Have a quick look at chapter one, verse 21, verse 2. Chapter 21, verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, I saw the holy city. Okay, John, well, thanks very much for that. What did it look like? 
It was prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now look down to verse 9. Uh, One of the angels says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John looks for her. What does he see? Well, he's carried to a high mountain and he sees the holy city, Jerusalem. So, when he looked for the bride, he saw the city. And when he looked for the city, he saw the bride. So, so the images of the city and the bride seem to be kind of superimposed on one another, almost as if we'd taken two photographs on the same piece of film. See, our, our finite minds find it really difficult, don't they, to cope with two different pictures at the same time. I mean, can you visualise a city dressed as a bride? Can you visualise a bride made of bricks and mortar. It's not easy, is it? And that's just one example, really, of the kind of challenge we're facing in these two chapters. Now, by now, of course, we're very used to the fact that John gives us lots of pictures that are symbolic. But in order to understand the message, we need to remember that in each case, the symbol is the most important thing. The symbol is more important than the picture. So we're not really meant to visualise these things, we're rather meant to interpret their meaning. Uh, And that means we need to proceed with a bit of caution. Now the more I've thought about this and what John's trying to do in these two chapters, uh, I've come to the conclusion that John's purpose here is to give us a sense of what it's going to feel like when we get to the new creation. So he's not giving us a detailed map or a photograph. No, he's giving us a foretaste of what it will feel like when we get there. Why? So that we can meditate on it and look forward to it, as Richard Baxter suggests. So in these two chapters, John is given uh, four visions which he shares with us. And each of these four visions is emphasising one different aspect of eternity. So, there's just four words you need to really take away from the message this morning. Firstly, we've got the vision of the new heaven and the new earth. It's a vision of the new universe. And I want to suggest to you that the, the main idea, the emphasis, the thing we're to take away from this is continuity. You see, in the new creation, we're going to see that there is an astonishing continuity between this present world, which we know so well, and the new environment in which we find ourselves. So notice, please, in passing, that we're not just simply looking forward to heaven, and I say that because our expectation is sometimes not physical enough Uh, Too often we think of um, a place somewhere up in the clouds, don't we? Without anything tangible or concrete. But this passage reminds us that we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to come into being, verse 5, notice verse (coughs) 5, when he, (coughs) excuse me, when he who sits on the throne 
says, I'm making everything new. Now in that paragraph, the word new is repeated three times. It talks about a new heaven, that there's a new earth, and God says, I'm making everything new. And the word that John uses doesn't mean new in the sense of original. It means new in the sense of renewed. In other words, there is continuity in everything that God does. That continuity, interestingly, is reflected in God's name. If you collect the names of God from Scripture, which is a good discipline, notice in verse 6 that God is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Why? Because what God is going to do at the end of time is very closely related to what he did at the beginning. So the new universe to which we're looking forward is not going to be created out of nothing, as this universe was. No, (coughs) instead, just as the individual Christian becomes a new creation in Christ, but is the same person, and just as the resurrection body will be essentially the same body with its identity intact. So that, for example, the scars of Jesus could be seen, couldn't they, on his hands and on his feet and in his side. So our bodies in the new creation will be the same, but will be renewed and transfigured and invested with tremendous new powers. And in the same way, you see, the new heaven and the new earth won't be a replacement universe. No, it will be a regenerated universe, essentially the same as the universe that we see today, but cleansed, purged of all of the consequences of man's sin and rebellion. So that in verse 4, there'll be no more death or mourning, or crying or pain, because those four things which have so terribly spoiled our present world will have passed away. And notice, please, in verse 8, that the world will finally be rid of the wicked, meaning those people who spoiled this world by their persistent rebellion against God. Now, there's another very important piece of evidence in this chapter confirming that the new universe will be in continuity with this present universe and not something totally new and unfamiliar as if we'd suddenly landed on Mars or Jupiter or something like that. No. Look at verses 24 and 26 of chapter 21. Verse 24 says, The nations will walk by the light of the city and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. Into what? Well, into the new Jerusalem. And again, verse 26, the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. So the question is, well, what is the glory of the nations? Uh, What is the splendour of the kings of the earth? Well, friends, it's referring to those parts of human culture which will not be destroyed 
but rather preserved and which will be taken into the new creation and will enrich it and beautify it and make it more wonderful. Let's think about that together for just a moment. I think perhaps the best way for us to understand what we mean by culture is to contrast culture with nature. So just think about that. Nature is what God provides and culture is what human beings do with it. So we have, don't we, agriculture, horticulture, um, viticulture, uh, aviculture. Those are all human activities working with and shaping God's gift of nature. But uh, because culture is a human product and it's like the human beings who've made it, now what does that mean? Well, it means that because human beings are made in the image of God, uh, some of our culture, uh, music, art and so on, some of it is beautiful and it is good and it is true because it is a reflection of human beings made in the image of God. But, because human beings are also fallen and sinful and evil, some of our culture is tainted and spoiled and even demonic. Now, verses 24 and 26 are telling us that those things in our culture which are an accurate reflection of uh, our existence as beings made in the image of God those things will be brought into the holy city, into the new Jerusalem, into the new world, and they will enrich it, and they will make it more enjoyable and more wonderful. So that's the first vision. It's a vision of a new world, a new universe, a new heaven and earth. And the emphasis, this is the word to take away, the emphasis is on continuity. Then the second vision is of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And here the emphasis is on security. So that's the second word to take away. We've already mentioned some of the references, but look again with me at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then again at the end of verse 10... He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now friends, in the Old Testament, uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. And perhaps for that reason, it was also a tremendous symbol of security. Uh, Jerusalem is often celebrated in the Old Testament because it was a place of safety, a place of security for the people of God. So, just to give you a couple of examples, Psalm 122 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Or, Psalm 125, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, another word for Jerusalem, which cannot be shaken, but which endures forever. So as John is shown the holy city coming down out of heaven, 
His attention is drawn to the architecture of the city, because that's the key to understanding the vision. So look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 14, uh, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So there you are, we have the twelve tribes written on the twelve gates, and the twelve apostles written on the twelve foundations. Uh, So what's the picture? Well, the, the twelve tribes were the core, they were the nucleus of the Old Testament people of God. And the twelve apostles are the the nucleus, the foundation, if you like, of the New Testament people of God. And when you join them together, uh, the book of Revelation refers to them as the twenty-four elders surrounding the throne of God. Well, we're not going to spend more time on that, but because in verses 15 and 16, some measuring takes place. Uh, The angel has a golden measuring rod and my dear friends, we are utterly astonished by what we're now shown. To begin with, we find that the city is a perfect cube because its height and its breadth and its length are identical. Now that is highly significant because there is only one other cube in the whole of the Bible. And that is, anybody? The Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. So, the new heaven and the new earth, or the holy city, are going to be a perfect cube because it will be the equivalent of the Holy of Holies. That means that you and I will never ever again be shut out from the presence of God. Because no longer will there be only one person, the high priest, allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year. No. We will all enter it. And not only will we enter it, but we will live there forever in the presence of God. And uh, what about the measurements? Just have a look at those. Uh, 12,000 stadia. Do you know what stadia are? 12,000 stadia, that's the equivalent today of 1,500 miles. Um, So the New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles wide. And the wall is 144 cubits thick. Now, of course, you're not meant to picture that literally. The numbers are symbolic. And what I want you to notice is that the numbers, uh, the measurements, have the number 12 in them. 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits, 12 times 12, okay? That is because 12 is the symbol of the church. 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. The number 12 is the church. And that's why we get this symbol being repeated over and over again. So, here's the New Jerusalem. Uh, It's a massive fortress. Its walls, we're told, are built of jasper. 
and each of the twelve foundations are constructed from a different jewel. Each gate is a single pearl, and the streets, we're told, are paved with pure gold. Now, of course, you can't visualise any of that accurately, but you can get a sense, can't you, of the, the beauty and, most importantly, the security of it. And inside the city, the people of God will enjoy perfect peace because there will be absolutely nothing to make us afraid. Now let's move on, because thirdly, uh, there's the vision of the beautiful bride. And here we've got something uh, wonderfully personal in the vision of the bride and the bridegroom. And uh, in this vision, here's our third word, the emphasis is on intimacy. The intimacy that exists between the bride and the bridegroom in the beauty of marriage. If you've been with us in the series, you'll remember we've already had a glimpse of this, haven't we, back in chapter 19. And now here in chapter 21, the marriage is mentioned again in verse 2, where John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And in verse 9, one of the angels says to John, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. <clears throat> now friends, uh, contrary to what uh, your friends may think, perhaps contrary to what you may think, uh, the Bible, God's book, has no hang-ups whatsoever about sex. The Bible is surprisingly uninhibited in the way that it talks about marriage and sex. So in the Old Testament, God speaks about his covenant love for Israel in bluntly physical, sexual language, especially in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea to say nothing of the Song of Songs. Now, in the New Testament, we have exactly the same thing. In Christ's love for the church, Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. And uh, having given himself up for her on the cross, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that Christ intends one day to present her to himself as a radiant church, without wrinkle or spot or blemish, in order that she might be his forever. And then in that passage, in Ephesians 5, Paul does something totally unexpected. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which gives us the biblical definition of marriage. And he says this, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh in the intimacy of their union. Now can you remember what Paul goes on to say about that quotation in Ephesians 5? He says, this is a great mystery and I take it to mean Christ and the church 
So you see, the New Testament is absolutely not ashamed to take sexual intimacy in marriage as a symbol of the perfect union between Christ and his church. Now there are two other ways in the passage in which the intimacy of that union at the end of time is expressed. One of them is the use of covenant language because the the covenant that God has established with his people for all time is a marriage covenant. That's why in verse 3 of chapter 21, have a look at it, verse 3, God says, sorry, John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now friends, you may not necessarily pick this up on the way through, but those words are repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. We find God saying, I will be your God, you shall be my people, I will be among you. See, those words are the fundamental basis of the covenant. And now, in the new heaven and the new earth, the the marriage covenant that God has established with us is completely and perfectly fulfilled. Which means that God will be our God in a way that he has not yet been our God. And we shall be his people united to him perfectly in love and glory. So that's another way that this intimacy is expressed in the passage. And the other way, as we've seen, is the city is the cube, the holy of holies, where we're going to enjoy the intimate, permanent presence of God, never ever again being separated from him. So that's the third vision. Are you all still tuned in? Are you with me? Uh, The new universe, vision number one. The holy city, vision number two. The beautiful bride, vision number three. Lastly, fourth vision, the river of life. And here we're in the first few verses of chapter 22. And I want to suggest to you that the emphasis in this vision, here's your fourth word, the emphasis in this vision is ecstasy. That's the perfect joy we're going to experience there. John sees the river, chapter 22, verse 1, and uh, the river of life is a symbol of eternal life. It's a symbol of our union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, symbolising eternal life, this river flows, notice this, from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And it comes out from under the throne because it's only by the sovereign will of Almighty God that eternal life is available to men and women today. Verse 2... It flows down the middle of the great street of the city, the New Jerusalem. And that's a way of saying, friends, that it's available to everyone to drink from whenever they want to. And it also waters the tree of life. 
And uh, notice, will you, that whilst there was just one tree of life in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that, now here, in the very last book of the Bible, we find that the tree of life has become an orchard of life. Tree, tree of life on both sides of the river. And the orchard is watered by the river of life so perfectly that it has a crop of fruit, not once a year, but once a month. So there's plenty of fruit for everyone to eat. Now again, cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of the Bible, and you'll remember, won't you, that access to the tree of life was denied, wasn't it, to Adam and Eve. But here, access to the tree of life is open to everybody. There's no more curse, verse 3. And that the idea is that we can eat all the fruit we want and drink all the water we want. So we can satisfy our appetite and we can quench our thirst perfectly. That, my friends, is a picture of ecstasy. Because when thirsty people drink or when hungry people eat, the body experiences, doesn't it, two ecstasies, two intense pleasures that are very hard to find anywhere else. Now, what is this ecstasy precisely? What is the cause of it? Verse 4. Verse 4. They will see his face. So, at last, we who have walked by faith will walk by sight. We shall see the one whom we've loved and followed and tried to serve as best we can all these years, we'll see him face to face. And the Bible's full, isn't it, of the promise that one day we shall see him. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 13 that the Apostle says that now we see dimly, as in a mirror, but then, chapter 22 of Revelation, we shall see him face to face. And to see God, think about this, to see God to know God, to enjoy God in the new world is the destiny for all God's people. And that, I think, is the secret of perfect satisfaction and that is the source of our ecstasy. Now, we don't have time to look at the rest of chapter 22 this morning, but as we close, I want you to notice the promise of the coming of Christ in this chapter because it's repeated three times. Verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. End of verse 20, Yes, I am coming soon. Now, some people have a great deal of difficulty with that word, soon. Because, of course, these promises were made 2,000 years ago. Uh, so, was Jesus perhaps mistaken? Um, how soon is soon? Well, whenever the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ, that word soon is used in a very special way. Because when it says he's coming back soon, what it means is that God has got absolutely nothing else on his calendar before the return of Jesus Christ. 
See, in the beginning, God had plenty on his calendar. Um, He had the birth of Christ, the incarnation, which we're going to be thinking about on Saturday, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the giving of the Great Commission to the Church. There were plenty of things on God's calendar in the beginning. But there is now no saving event involving the person and work of Jesus Christ on God's timetable until he comes back. And that's why he says, I'm coming soon. Because it's the next event. It's the next event. And in the meantime, he wants his people in every generation to be alert and watchful and ready. Why? Well, friends, so that when he comes, we're not going to shrink back from him in shame and embarrassment for living disobediently and unbelievingly. But rather, when he comes, we will rise up to welcome him and to greet him. So what can we take away from these two chapters about our experience, how we're going to feel in the life of the world to come? Well, from the vision of the renewed universe, we've learned there's going to be a delightful continuity between this present world and the world to come. From the vision of the new Jerusalem, we've learned that in the new creation, the people of God are going to be perfectly secure. Then from the vision of the bride of Christ adorned for her husband, we've learned that our union with Christ in the new creation will be a union of perfect, delightful intimacy. And from the fourth vision of the river of life, we've learned that the experience of seeing Jesus face to face will be an experience of the purest ecstasy. Now friends, these pictures of the future, I need to tell you, they're only symbols, they're only pictures, and when the reality comes it is going to be far, far greater than the things we've been saying this morning. But the key question is, the key question is, do you believe that? Do you believe it? I sincerely hope you do. And if you do, can I encourage all of us this morning to make it a priority, particularly over this Christmas time, to fix your mind on it every day, in your prayers, uh, in your conversations with each other, in your witnessing to unchurched friends and family. Because you see, everything that we've learned together this morning is what Jesus came into the world to achieve. In other words, it is Christmas completed. Well, will you bow with me and let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world of Christmas to make a way for us to enjoy these things with you in the new creation. Please help us to develop a healthy habit of lifting our eyes beyond the daily details of our lives in order to meditate on the future that you've prepared for us. 
And as we do so, please kindle a holy fire in each one of us to point others to the Lord Jesus. For we ask it in his precious name.